Choose Linux, episode 9, for May 16th, 2019. Hello and welcome to the show that captures the excitement of discovering Linux. I'm Joe. And I'm Jason. And here we are for episode 9. And we're going to be talking about Intel's Clear Linux and also your new project, which is about contributing to free and open source software. But let's start with Intel's Clear Linux then. This has really taken you, hasn't it? Yeah, it has. And it sort of came out of left field. I've always noticed uh, Michael at Foronix doing benchmark after benchmark after benchmark. And consistently you see that Clear Linux is basically dominating every other distro and, and frequently beating even Windows 10 in you know, every kind of benchmark. Which is not a huge surprise. Anything that's based around benchmarking Intel CPUs, you'd expect Intel's own Linux distro to do well. Well, right. But I've even seen select benchmarks where machines equipped with, say, Ryzen Threadripper are also winning those benchmarks using Clear Linux. And that's something I'd really like to dig into. But I have avoided Clear Linux because I thought it was just in the realm of, you know, people, you know, wanting to work with containers and cloud servers and various other more professional environments than what I dabble in, obviously. And I caught a peak of the installer once and I just noped right out. It's not that bad, the old installer. It's just kind of a curses based, very much like Debian. Have you never installed Debian then? No, I've actually never installed Debian. Okay. It's on my list. But it just, I don't know, it turned me off. That's all I can say is it just turned me off. And then over the weekend, I, I caught some whispers about this, you know, radically updated installer that they had. And I went to check it out over at Foronix, and it looked beautiful. It was just a complete overhaul. It's it's this very simple kind of flat icon design, all contained within two tabs. There's no next, next, next. It's just selecting your time zone, your keyboard layout, your uh, destination disk, adding a user, and then enabling or disabling uh, telemetry which is disabled by default, so good on you, Intel. And then you've got some advanced options. You click over to the other tab, and there's all of these bundles, you know, desktop bundles and various uh, programming, data science bundles that you can add into the installation. It was kind of a breath of fresh air because it's, uh, it's not what I expected. And it has a GNOME live desktop environment alongside it. So you boot into that, and the only thing you have to do, which is a bit of an irritation, is you have to use the live desktop environment to connect to the internet if you're using Wi-Fi. There's not actually an option in the installer to add your network connection, which is strange. Probably not an oversight, just probably a matter of a feature that's you know going to be added later. So it's got GNOME, which you like, and I am not a huge fan of, let's say. <laughs> However, you can install... XFCE on top of it, KDE, Cinnamon, and a few other desktop environments via their um, software updater. SWUPD, S-W-U-P-D. It's a package manager that they wrote from scratch along with the rest of the distribution. And it really is fast. It's really, really fast. And I'm not going to 
install this and use it as my daily driver yet. But what really got my attention, it wasn't the benchmarks. I ran some benchmarks just to kind of personally verify that even with a lower-powered machine, you know, an XPS 13 or a just an i5 um, PC, I wanted to see if Intel's Clear Linux was still edging out the other distros in, you know, disk benchmarks and CPU benchmarks. Because Michael has some extremely powerful hardware, and it makes more sense to see those gaps in performance, you know, as those optimizations are complemented by, you know, 16 cores, it, it makes sense. So I just I just had to run those myself to kind of get that that verification. But what really stood out to me, Joe, was the browsing experience, if you can believe that. Firefox feels buttery smooth and fast and really, really responsive. And I've used so many distros at this point. I've installed Fire, you know, pretty much, well, Firefox is normally right there out of the box. And so I've used it on so many machines and across so many distros. And this felt like the fastest Firefox experience I had ever had. So it's even faster than your XFCE experiences then? <sighs> yes. That didn't sound very convincing. <laughs> <laughs> no, the, the truth is I'm not, I'm not really sure. It might be one of those situations where it's, it's just subjective. It just feels faster to me, where it may actually be faster on XFCE, but you know what? We can actually put that to the test. And while I didn't compare uh, the Firefox browsing experience against XFCE, I did compare it to Ubuntu 19.04. With actual benchmarks? Yeah, with the Pharonix test suite. I wanted to see if it was my imagination or if there was actually better performance happening. I used uh, Ubuntu 19.04, clean install, fully updated, and then a clean install of Clear Linux. And Clear Linux won every single benchmark. In a couple cases, it was just a embarrassing victory, really. <laughs> um, so the, the testing backed up that, that feeling that I had, that it was just a little bit faster. And I'd be really interested to see if it's faster on Chrome as well. And I'd really love to see how it compares to, as you said, XFCE. Yeah, which you can actually test in clear Linux. As you said, XFCE is available. Yeah, exactly. Um, so that would be very interesting to do. But I can't, I can't overstate how good and fast and responsive Firefox felt on this distro. Right. So we've established that it's easy to install. It's super fast. It looks good. It's got GNOME, which you like, but you're saying that you're not going to use it as your daily driver. So why? There are some downsides, Joe. For example, you cannot do any manual partitioning yet. It's basically a destructive install, right? You choose your disk, you blow it out. Yeah, which is something I came up against because I didn't want to wipe the whole disk on the box that I was doing it on. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, so I had to, I, I struggled with running it inside of a VM and I don't, I don't normally like to test distros inside a VM anyway. I just, I like to get that native experience. But there's a lot going for Clear Linux. It has flat pack support right out of the box. And Intel has populated the software store with 4,000 different apps and bundles. And they're actually looking to triple that number by the end of 2019. But 
things that I care about, such as gaming, installing the NVIDIA driver is a complete pain in the ass. Oh, that's not good. Oh, I mean, it's it's very, very manual, you know, compiling. And I didn't even bother, bother trying it because... Uh, my eyes glazed over looking at their instructions. To their inc- to their credit, yes, they have very clear instructions, but it it just is not something I wanted to deal with, especially after doing you know the Linux gaming report where it, it's it's almost a zero step process with distros like Manjaro and Pop OS. Yeah. So there's there's little things holding it back. You know, sure, you I could install Steam uh, via Flatpak, piece of cake. But I think it's just a little bit lean on the software right now. And I, I, I think that they have a lot more to do to make it appeal to your average desktop user like me. But if you look at what they've done in just the last couple of weeks, it seems like they're moving really aggressively towards that. You know, they've opened a community forum soliciting feedback. The installer is, I mean, practically overnight, it, it turned into this really basic, ugly thing into this beautiful custom installer. It, you know, it's a, it's a good desktop experience so far. So I'm not sure what their play is, but if I had to make a guess, obviously they have their enterprise customers. You know, it, this is a great product for enterprise, for large companies, um, people working in the cloud, people doing development. But I have a hunch that when Intel's dedicated graphics cards come out next year, that they're going to have a much bigger push for clear Linux um, just on the desktop for you and I, for normal users. It does feel very targeted at developers, stuff like having to compile the graphics drivers and stuff. But I think you might be right that they do really want to have a big push with these graphics cards. And what better place to show them off than your own distro? So that might explain why They've kind of given this desktop version a lot more love recently. And I think the the optimizations that they do on the CPU side right now, you know those are going to extend to the graphics cards. And those graphics cards aren't going to be just for gaming. They're going to be for machine learning and, and things like that. Well, probably primarily, really, because the gaming market is fairly big, but that machine learning AI market is potentially much, much bigger so it wouldn't surprise me at all if that's where they were targeting those graphics cards. I mean, we're really just speculating at this point, aren't we? We don't really have any firm details of them. We just know that they will be creating uh, dedicated graphics cards across the stack. So, you know, for AI and big data, for machine learning, for gaming, for things like that. So we know they'll have a product to serve those different needs. It's always so nice to install a Linux distro on an all Intel system. And I'm really looking forward to being able to install something like Clear Linux or any other distro on an all Intel system that includes a badass gaming GPU, where it's just all in the kernel, it's all optimized, it's just ready to rock. So uh, yeah, the next year should be really, well, not the next year, but 2020 and beyond should be really, really interesting with regards both to their dedicated GPUs and Clear Linux. Yeah, Clear Linux does feel a little bit rough and ready at this point but it is improving pretty quickly as you say so it's definitely going to be one to watch i think that 2020 will probably be the year for it i have to imagine it doesn't take much of a push from intel if they really want that to happen right i mean they have you know an incredibly large tool chest when it comes to both uh you know resources and manpower and money 
And I don't think it would take a lot of time for them to just split off and go, you know what, we're going to spend a few months really making this the best desktop Linux distro that the world has seen. If they want to do that, if there is a financial incentive for them to do that. It would be amazing if they managed to partner with some big OEMs like Dell or whatever and ship it on some hardware. That would be incredible. We didn't mention that it's a rolling release distro. And I don't know how suitable that is going to make it for the mainstream. I suppose it depends on how well maintained it is and everything, which I think you have to run it for a while to really get that. I mean, with rolling releases, they can break, especially if you go a while without updating them. I know that's something that happens a lot with Arch. And as much as I love Manjaro, I do often get that. If I haven't turned a machine on for a while and I do a full update, sometimes it just won't even boot afterwards. So that does worry me a little bit. But I think, as you say, they do have the personnel there. They do have the resources to really make a great distro. And what we've already got is pretty good. Well, I don't know if I can put your concerns at ease uh, with, with regards to the rolling release model. But what's really interesting about Clear Linux is with the rolling release model, you're going to have these frequent updates and they're going to be large updates. You're always going to be downloading large packages, right? The difference with Clear Linux is that only the updated bits of a package are downloaded as opposed to an entirely new version. So in theory, it should be a fairly lightweight, fast update process. Yeah, they call that Delta updates. It's what Android does, and it seems like a very modern way of doing it. Whereas, you know, the Debian-based distros like Ubuntu that are using this kind of old way of doing it where you replace the entire binary, it feels a little bit sort of 20th century, really. So things like that show that Intel really is building this on modern technology. Would it really take, and I'm asking this from a completely ignorant stance, would it take a lot of effort for them to simply say, hey, here's Clear Linux, the rolling release, and here's Clear Linux stable? I think they could do that. It would be a fair bit of effort. I don't know actually how many developers they have working on this, but they do have a lot of resources. I would imagine they'd be able to just put a team on that and have two different distros. So yeah, I don't think it would be impossible. And it would certainly appeal to me more if there were snapshot releases of it. But I think developers like rolling releases because they do get the latest of everything, whereas I'm just much more conservative, and that's why I stick to the Ubuntu LTSs. But Clear Linux is not the only thing you've been getting excited about since the last episode. I think it's fair to say you're fairly enthusiastic about joining GitHub and you're contributing to FOSS Project. I have gone down yet another rabbit hole, and it's a pretty exciting one. I've wanted to open a GitHub account for months, but I've wanted to do something with it. And do you, do you remember? I don't know if I don't know if we talked about this on the show, but there was a band named Lorenzo's Music, and they recorded their entire album with Ubuntu Studio last year. I mean, mixed it, did blogs from it, edited their videos, literally every part of the album making process, they used open source software on Ubuntu Studio. That was kind of inspiring. I wrote about it and then some time passed. And Tom Ray, the the singer and songwriter of that band, 
hit me up on Twitter the other day and told me that they actually use GitHub to work on new songs. And I was really intrigued by that because, you know, music is something I've been wanting to do. I've been wanting to shift away from, from Mac OS and start doing this in, uh, in Linux and open source stuff. And so he started explaining me, you know, the version control that they have with that and how it's a little bit complicated, but it allows them a lot of control and documentation of the entire process. thought that was really interesting. At about the same time, I was doing some research for an article that I've been wanting to write for months. You know, we, we, just, we just came off of episode eight where we were talking about community. And I'm not a programmer. I don't know how to write a single line of code, but I've always wanted to give back in some way to the Linux and open source community. And so I started just asking questions, how can I do that? And I got into this really amazing discussion with Dustin over at Ubuntu Budgie, a bashful robot on Twitter. I think a lot of you have interacted with him. And he just started rattling off all of these ways that people can give back, can contribute, regardless of skill set, regardless of experience. And so I, I spoke to him, I did some research, I reached out to people on Twitter, and I wrote this article called Eight Ways to Contribute to the Desktop Linux Community Without Knowing a Single Line of Code. Yeah, you had to go for a listicle title, didn't you, just to annoy me? It's Forbes, man. I... <laughs> <laughs> you, you have to, you have to, you got to have the, not clickbait, but yeah, you, you know, anything with a number in the title, it gets more hits. And in this case, I'm very happy that it gets more hits. So there's eight basic things, at least that I outlined, and I won't go into a lot of detail here, but you've got marketing and advocacy, testing, filing bug reports, documentation, community questions and support, translations, which is something that the community really needs, apparently. Um, art and photography and just kind of getting creative with assets. And then, of course, donations. But where I got really hung up was I wanted to point people at all of the various getting involved pages. You know, how do I get involved with Ubuntu? How do I find out what Ubuntu Budgie needs or what, you know, Sean at XFCE needs? Like, how do I... How do I find all that stuff? And everyone has different procedures for testing, for bug reports, for writing documentation. And so I thought, the, naturally, the only proper thing to do was create a wiki that just collected, just comprehensively collected everything. Large projects, small projects, distros, you name it just collected all of those links and all of that information and all of those procedures into one place. And so that's when I decided, yeah, I'm definitely going to open a GitHub account and just dive in head first, basically. Have you had any pushback from people who say you shouldn't be using GitHub, you should be using GitLab because GitHub's proprietary? No, none. All right. That's a little bit surprising. Although I suppose your crowd generally is a bit more laid back about that stuff. Yeah, probably more laid back about that stuff. And people are already contributing to this, aren't they? Yeah. It, so within, this is what's crazy. Within, I literally just, you know, I started, a, uh, I started a repository and I took just a, an ODT file of my original Forbes article and threw that in there and wrote a little intro. This is the goal of this project. And then I just put it out there. There was nothing there. 
really, except for my article verbatim. And within less than 24 hours, we had contributors jumping in there, opening up issues, um, you know, seven or eight issues by now, suggesting ideas. Someone took the article and uh, formatted it to Markdown format. Another person said, hey, you need to add this, uh, you need to add a license file and you need to have an index. And so they took, a, they took the article and made an index. People have been adding links to the bottom of the article, which, which has some of the links that I collected. That's kind of what we're building on. There's been 23 commits. It's been forked four times. <laughs> There's three, three contributors. I mean, it's, it's incredible. It's really, it just has shocked me. So it's actually going somewhere. It is actually going somewhere. And I don't know what kind of pace to expect, but I'd like to hope that more and more people will be drawn into it and we can actually make something really cool and really useful. It's on the right track. Yeah, it certainly sounds like it. So if you had to pick one of those eight ways that you can contribute, what would you go for? What would you suggest to people? Or does it depend on people's skill set? There are certain things with a higher barrier of entry, right, that require certain skills. But then I think there are things that anyone can do, anyone with the, the passion and the drive to do it. You know, if you've used your favorite distro for years, or you've used a certain desktop environment or a certain piece of software like TimeShift or whatever, if you have good experience and you can jump into a forum or an IRC chat and just help answer questions that people have, right? That's something that a lot of people can do. A lot of people can donate. A lot of people can take, you know, $3 and throw it at their favorite project. A lot of people can do testing. I was talking to the Ubuntu Budgie guys, and they have one 4K monitor between all of them. They don't have um, systems with that sys.power sensor that lets you monitor power consumption while you're doing various tasks on the desktop. And so that's one of the weird that's one of the weird kind of uplifting stories around this whole project is I've been helping Dustin at Ubuntu Budgie testing the distro on a couple different laptops that that can read that power consumption. And he was like, "Congratulations, you're contributing. You're a tester." <laughs> I was like, "Huh, what yeah. do you know?" You know, wow, I, I didn't even think about that. I'm actually, I'm helping, I'm making a difference. So that was really, that was, yeah, it was just made me smile. That's all I can say. It just made me smile. You know, marketing might be a bit more high level. Anybody can test, see if they need help testing on, you know, crappy low end laptops, or maybe you've got a specific graphics card that they might want to test with. You know, when it comes to bug reports, I think that. We could really do with these projects having better documentation about how to file good bug reports, good and useful bug reports. Mm -hmm. Because a lot of projects get quite a lot of not that useful bug reports. And so that's what I would focus on in this project. But I think the, um, the donations thing, that is really important as well, because it's all well and good for a bunch of amateurs to get together and you know, offer their time and stuff. But there's nothing quite like having people working full time on a project. And if these projects had enough money coming in, they'd be able to hire people. And that would be better, I think, than people giving their time in a lot of ways. Your time is very valuable. And yes, people should definitely contribute their time. But 
I think people might have a bit of a skewed view of the whole Linux and open source thing, that this assumption that everything is free. Whereas maybe it's it's too much talking to Dan from Elementary OS and how their whole philosophy is trying to get people to pay for stuff and trying to be professional about it. But I think that ultimately leads to better software and better open source software. But, I mean, this goes back to one of the oldest conversations in Linux is funding it. But I just wish that people would contribute more financially. Do you think maybe there's a mentality, you know, where people think, what difference am I going to make giving them $5? What, what difference can that possibly make? But if hundreds or thousands of people do that same thing, then the difference is clear. Yeah. I think that projects feel a bit, I don't know, awkward about asking for money because not everyone can afford it. And the, the whole point of free and open source software is that anyone can use it. And it doesn't really matter whether you can contribute financially or not. But I just think that people who are in a position to should do it. And I'm hypocritical because I don't donate anywhere near as much as I ought to. So for stuff that I use all the time, I should contribute to Audacity. I use that almost every day. And and yet I don't contribute to it. I think the takeaway here is that there are so many ways that people can contribute in a meaningful way to an open source project that maybe they're even not aware of. I would encourage people to look at this uh, this project or go back to read the Forbes article. But if you want to contribute to this project, which would be awesome, you can find it on GitHub or uh, you can just enter tinyurl.com slash contribute to FOSS in your browser. And that'll take you right to the, the GitHub project page. Yeah, we'll have links in the show notes so you can check them out there. But yeah, I have to say I'm enjoying going down the GitHub rabbit hole. I've I've learned to, you know, deal with pull requests and um, analyze conflicting files, and uh, even had Dustin do a little screen sharing tour this morning where he uh, taught me how to manage it all from the command line. So that was really quite an education. And I, I felt a bit overwhelmed, but also super excited about that because it's so much easier than using GitHub's web interface. I've got a funny feeling that it won't be long before you're writing a bit of Python. Huh, don't know a thing about it. <laughs> but <laughs> I didn't know a thing about any of this nine months ago. Yeah, but that would be a good way to get into GitHub as well. Actually write some code and maybe start a little project. And I hear that Python is very much the easiest to learn because it's it's written in sort of almost plain English. So if, if you do think about doing a bit of programming or coding, then yeah, Python would be my recommendation. Hmm. Well, anything can happen at this point. Yeah. I really, I didn't think that I would wake up this morning and have Visual Studio Code and Terminal lined up side by side going through pull requests and <laughs> doing all of that. Quite the journey, Joe. And it feels like you're only really just starting that journey. And we'll be following it on future episodes. So go to chooselinux.show slash subscribe and you'll find ways to get all of those episodes. And if you want to get in contact with us, chooselinux.show slash contact. And if you want to keep up with us on Twitter, you can find me at killyourfm. And I'm at Joe Ressington. We'll be back in two weeks with more exciting discoveries. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. Mm-hmm.